Would you seek the advice of a pyromaniac on how to keep your house safe from fire? Or would you seek financial direction from someone who had claimed bankruptcy no less than 18 times? Or better still, would you take guidance from a divorce attorney on how to stay in love? Well, regarding the last matter at least, we did just that, and we are so glad. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. All my life, watching America. All my life, it's panic in America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. You said we'd light the firmament. You swore our love was permanent. You said we'd stick through thick and thin. Through up and down, through lose and win. But comes the first sign. Judith Newman, the New York Times book reviewer, regarding my next guests, wrote the following. Who would have guessed that the person who gives you the best advice about marriage was the guy responsible for getting you out of it? Well, ladies and gentlemen, from that statement, I assume you deduce that we are talking to an attorney. Yes, James J. Sexton, Esquire, no less. He is the author of a hardback book, which was called If You're In My Office... It's already too late. Well, it's not too late to get a trade version of this book because in trade paperback now, the new title is How to Stay in Love, and that's an extremely appropriate title. You see, sometimes people who have to deal with the rather jaundiced aspects of life and, well, relationships that are facing their demise are in the best position to warders of potential, well, rocks and dangers that are ahead in a relationship. And none perhaps can do it any better than James J. Sexton. Welcome, Mr. Sexton, to our program, Watching America. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Okay. Now, first question I want to start with, are you related to Laurie Forrest, the writer of young adult fiction? I am. That's my sister. Ah, okay. So there is this trend with stories and narrative in, in your family, is there not? There is, yeah, yeah. We we were we were certainly. Uh, I think it's a function of having been raised without a lot of financial resources. We we had the, the uh, uh, you know, our imaginations were really our best companions. And my sister, who is uh, six years older than me, much to her chagrin, um, she uh, was an amazing storyteller. And and we used to take all of our stuffed animals and and create these very complicated and interesting worlds between them. And they would each have personalities and. It's very funny because she had the imagination of a, of a you know a children's writer, and of course that's what she ended up doing. And I, as a function of this sort of play we used to do together, would would find myself in the position of having to resolve conflicts between these characters that she'd created with these stuffed animals. You know, she would create these really elaborate stories about you know things they were fighting about and. It really was my first experience, I think, doing the, the same work I do now, which is to, to, to try to find a way to either mediate or to sort of advocate on the behalf of, you know, at that time it was a stuffed rabbit and now it's a multimillionaire, you know, hedge fund owner. Um, but but it was, uh, it was uh, yeah, it's part of our family dynamic. And I, again, I think it's a pleasant side effect of having grown up without, uh, you know, the, the funds to afford video games or expensive toys. Is it fair to say that in the legal profession, particularly with trial cases, that much of what you do is creating narrative? Yeah, I, I've always said that trial lawyers are, are storytellers, and, and we're storytellers in a very uh, complicated set of rules. Um, you know, most of what you learn in law school is is really the rules of how information can be presented to a court within these very strict uh, parameters. But I, I think it's all about the art of telling a compelling story and, and, and finding ways to, to not only you know, tell your client's story from your client's perspective and in a way that makes your client a sympathetic character and maybe villainizes the other side to the extent that's necessary, but also that, you know, that the way to, to sort of take apart the narrative of the other 
um, of the adversary and, and to show where there are holes or flaws in their logic or in their story. But yeah, I, I think trial work is, is absolutely a, a storytelling art. And, and that's why I think you see so many authors who were originally lawyers, because I think we're, we're, we very often you know have that trait and that fondness for storytelling. Well, given the idea that young people have a propensity to um, certainly have dealings of imprinting uh, with association persons that they admire, you grew up with some degree of a of a steady diet watching L.A. Law. Is that not true? I did. Yeah. When I was, my my family, you know, they didn't watch a lot of television, uh, but but we, there were certain programs my parents would watch, and and they were usually the evening programs. And I remember falling asleep, you know, on the living room floor to the sound of certain shows. And one of the shows my parents watched religiously was L.A. Law, and I remember wanting to be Victor Cifuentes, who was the Jimmy Smith's character, who was mm. a criminal defense lawyer, and he had a ponytail and an earring, and he was very He was cool. the cool one, yes. Yeah, he was, and I wanted, as a young man, I wanted to be that cool, um, which surprised me that I ended up becoming Arnie Becker, who was presented as a kind <laughs> of shallow, uh, you know, money-chasing sort of Lothario character, and, and, and uh, I never imagined I would be Arnie Becker, but it, it, it turns out I'm closer to the Arnie Becker character than the, than the Victor Cifuentes character. Well, you were a debater in high school, and then uh, after that, you uh, were very intrigued by persons and their makeup. So you just really studied psychology as an undergraduate major before going to law school. Correct. I, I, I studied psychology as an undergraduate, and then I actually went and did a master's degree in propaganda studies at New York University, and I studied mass persuasion. I studied uh, um, Nazi propaganda, and I, I actually studied the techniques of propaganda that were posited by Jacques Ellul, the French scholar, um, and the ideas of how you could apply those to things like advertising. And so I was just always very interested in persuasion, I think, and, and um, there was a synergy. Looking back, you know, I can now see that all of these pieces added up to becoming the the, the career that I, I came to to be and love for the last twenty years. But um, it, it it definitely was. Uh, I took the long road to get there. <laughs> Are there positive things to be learned from Goebbels? I think so. I mean, well, I think Goebbels learned some of his perspective from Jacques Ellul, uh, who wrote the book uh, Propaganda, the the formation of men's attitudes. And and that was the idea of total propaganda, that propaganda is is an environment. It's not a singular um, thing, you know, a singular symbol or a singular motto that that really, and we see this in advertising, you know, it's it's, if we're advertising a product, we we don't just want to say, okay, we're just going to run TV ads. We want to have billboards and ads and T-shirts and hats and the more that a person feels like they're immersed in the propaganda environment, the more that, that they're going to remember the symbols you know, that, are, that are presented to them. So I think that was really useful for me to understand when I became a lawyer because you know, judges are human beings uh, who have an attention span. And, and sometimes you know, if you just present something once to them in oral argument, you're, you're not going to get there. So you have to find you know, five or six ways in a two or three minute presentation orally to the court to hit your most salient and important points and also to see what's resonating, you know, with a, with a person. And I, I think that that's, um, that's not always easy, but that's really the task. Well, in your 20 years of practice, you've certainly employed uh, a lot of the givens associated with psychology, but you also learned some of that, I understand, from having been a waiter where you learned to accommodate the needs of, of a potential tipper. Tell us about yeah. that. Yeah, I was a server for a long time. I mean, it was a great job to have when you're a student because you could, you know, work in the evenings and, and take your classes during the day. And I, I think you learn a lot uh, in a service profession of that kind about um, how to, you know, how to modify your persona to, to meet the demands of the of the customer, you know. And, and, and it was very similar to the things I had to learn about the proclivities of, of individual judges. You know, if you have a table full of, you know, a group of men just got out of work, you know, you might want to accommodate yourself to them by saying, all right, who, you know, well, boy, this crew is going to be trouble. You know, who's ready for Sam Adams or who's ready for a Budweiser here, you know, uh, and, and sort of match up with their energy. And, and if you see a, a couple on a date and maybe it looks like a first date because they're all spruced up and, and having awkward conversation, you know, you might make the 
you know, the man when he's ordering, you know, look good, you know, and oh, that's an excellent choice of wine, sir. Oh, yes, that's going to pair beautifully with what you selected. And, you know, it, it, it teaches you something about, again, that art of persuasion, that art of connection um, and helping people, you know, tell a story. You know, he's trying to, on that date, present himself as the man who's worthy of this woman's attention. And if I can help him tell that story, I'm, I'm doing a good job. So I, I think it was it was great practice. And it also was great practice that, you know, the reality that sometimes you just can't please people, that they've come in, you know, to the restaurant looking to just yell at someone or be discourteous to someone. And no matter how hard you work at it, they're just not going to be happy. And I think there are some judges, uh, you know, and even some clients who no matter how hard you work for them, they're, they're just unhappy with their situation. And it gave me a very thick skin. And I think that a thick skin is important in my line of work. I, I say this with no um, uh, animosity whatsoever, but genuine curiosity. So I hope that you will receive this question in that spirit. I've often wondered about attorneys. Um, there's facets to the, to the job that would appeal to me, the drama, the courtroom, uh, the, the narratives, indeed, all these things which we've uh, referenced already. Yeah. But when you have to, if you will, employ accommodation to various degrees, how does an attorney – and it's interesting that attorneys also go into, very often into politics – how do you find that measure of to thine own self be true? Well, that's a great question. I, I, I think that you first have to have a fundamental faith in, in the system itself. You know, you have to remind yourself fairly often that, um, you know, that the system works when everyone has an advocate and you have to have some faith in the idea that the truth fears no trial. Um, and that the truth has a way of coming out. And I, I will say 20 years of courtroom experience has taught me that the truth does have a way of coming out. But there are times, I, I think, where you are challenged, um, you know, from a moral standpoint and from a, a personal morality standpoint. And, and it's difficult not to throw the game, you know, and it's, it's difficult also to reconcile the desire to win and be, be good at what you do and please your client with your own sense of, of morality and, and, and wanting to do the right thing. But what I'll also say is I, I think in my career, I, you know, I tell clients when I first meet them, because I want them to be candid with me, I tell them that, you know, I represent people who have been cheated on and I represent the cheater and I represent people who have drug and alcohol problems and I represent people who are married to people and they're leaving them because of drug and alcohol problems. So I think when you spend enough time with almost anyone, you really start to understand human emotional complexity. And, and it's a reminder of, you know, Solzhenitsyn's uh, belief that, you know, if only there were good and bad people and all we needed to do was segregate, you know, the bad people from the good people and we'd be able to live in harmony. But the line of good and evil runs through the human heart and who would want to cut out a piece of their own heart? You know, I, I feel like when you spend time with with people who've even been accused of, of terrible behavior by any objective moral standard, you start to understand a little bit more about them. You know, when you spend time with someone, for example, who's committed intimate partner violence, domestic violence, of course, you know, there's as a, as a human being and as a man, there are pieces of me that find that just so abhorrent that I would have to, um, you know, it's very difficult to, 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 to imagine a person doing that. But then when you talk to these people, you find out that they grew up in households where, you know, their father was violent against their mother, you know, and, and they, they grew up you know, whoever discovered water, it was unlikely to have been a fish, you know, and, and these people believe that this was normal, normalized behavior. So I, I think the way I reconcile it is just understanding that people deserve an advocate. Our system, in theory, and, and certainly in my experience, generally tends to work, um, that the truth tends to come out. And that, you know, I, I just don't really know that I believe any more in the idea of, of, you know, I believe in redemption. I do think that, that good people can do bad things and, and bad people can do good things. So. You have said elsewhere that depending on how you are being perceived by either representing uh, an individual or opposing them, you've been described as either a compassionate, dedicated advocate uh, or as a ruthless son of a gun or SOB. Uh, are you comfortable in both roles or do you have a preference? I, no, I'm comfortable in both roles. I think it's a question of the right tool for the right task. I, I, I tell clients all the time that, you know, mine is a profession where people come in and will say to me, you know, I've heard you're a ruthless, vicious, evil pit bull. Uh, and and uh, they mean it as a compliment. You know, this is the, because I, I hear that as them saying to me they feel unsafe and that they need someone to make them feel safe. And and I think that's a, a you know, a tremendous um 
uh, honor to be able to, to, to be someone's advocate who doesn't feel safe. So essentially, um, people want Godzilla on their side. Sometimes they do, yeah. And I think sometimes the only thing that stops a person with a gun is another person with a bigger gun, you know. And, and I think the only thing that stops a bully sometimes is a bigger bully. And so I, I'm comfortable, especially in a family law setting with that, because I... You know, these are people who have children together very often, and if they're arguing over custody issues and there's enough, you know, fighting between the two people, it's going to impact generations. It's going to impact their children, their grandchildren. Whereas if if someone's ex-wife, if she hates me, well, that's okay. Like, blame me for everything that, that has happened here, if, if that'll help, because you're not going to, you don't have children with me. You're not going to have grandchildren with me. You're not going to have to attend your child's wedding someday with me. So if I become the sort of straw man um, that my client can say, look, I, I really want to pay X number of dollars of child support, and I want it to be a low number, so do your best to make it low. And when she says to him, how dare you pay such a little amount? And he says, well, it's not me. The lawyer told me that that's what I should be paying, and so I just have to trust my lawyer. I think it gives someone cover or plausible deniability, and I'm, I'm comfortable with that because I, I understand that, that you know, I, I think there is a, a reason behind that, why people don't want to be confrontational. They need someone to confront for them, and my, my need to maintain moral purity is, I think, lower than their need to, you know, uh, accomplish the objectives they need to accomplish. I'm eager to get into the main thrust of the book, which is actually love and preserving relationships. But before we do, let me just uh, ask you two questions. You have described uh, a divorce lawyer as being a weapon. Um, uh, Do you always feel comfortable firing, you know, right off in all directions? Or do you sometimes want to say, "Uh, yeah, I'm a weapon, but I, I suggest we pull back in this regard? Yeah, no, I think the latter. I mean, I, I certainly think that weapons of any kind should be treated with a certain amount of respect. And, and I think in the hands of a person who has good intentions, a weapon can be incredibly helpful and protective. And in the hands of a person who has nefarious intentions, a weapon can be incredibly destructive. And, and so um, I, I tell people all the time that, that you know, I, I should be treated like a weapon in the sense that I, I should only be used to the extent that it's necessary uh, and no more and no less. And that sometimes the threat of the use of the weapon is the thing that prevents the need to use the weapon. I mean, I I think most police officers, thankfully, don't have to draw their firearms because the visible sight of their firearm is sufficient to to motivate someone not to have to engage uh, with the person in a way that would require the use of that firearm. So I I tell people always that, you know, being strategic is is always good and, and being kind and compassionate and trying to be conciliatory in the manner in which you resolve conflict is always the ideal you know, beginning. But the reality is that, you know, sometimes you, there are people that, that, uh, you, that you can't save that you have to stop. And there are people who really do require um, the threat of some kind of economic personal harm in order to be sufficiently motivated to do the right thing. So uh, I, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with, again, telling people to be nice until it's time to not be nice. And I, the, the, what I tell most clients is that, look, I don't think anyone should get in a fight, um, and I don't think fighting is in and of itself a good thing. But if, you're, if you have to hit someone, you should hit them, hit them so they don't get up. Because if you hit them softly, you're just going to upset them. So I think if, you know, if I don't want to hit you, but if I have to hit you, I'm going to hit you so you don't get up. Well, the last question I wanted to ask you before we actually get into preserving relationships is – because of your skill and ability in the courtroom and because of your, uh, like it or not, willingness to be a weapon of a sort, have you ever been alarmed or in fear of your personal safety because of a reprisal from someone you've been up against? Yeah, it's a great question, and, and, and it's one that I, I don't think people ask often. But, yeah, I, I actually have a folder of death threats um, that I keep uh, in my uh, drawer uh, here at my desk. And, and uh, it, it actually is a, a, a folder of, you know, letters that have been sent to me, usually anonymously, uh, saying that they're going to kill me or that they're going to kill my children. Uh, and and, and I, I do think people take the work I do very personally. Uh, I'm thankful that I've never had someone actually physically confront me. I did have someone once try to physically confront me in the parking lot of a Starbucks coffee uh, who, you know, I, I'd represented his wife, you know, years before, and he remembered me. I didn't remember him. And as I walked out of a Starbucks, he came up to me and said, you know, you know, you know, you, you, I hope you know you ruined my life. And I said, look, I, I don't know if this gives you any comfort, but I have no idea who you are. And, and 
I assume I must have represented someone against you, but I, I, this was not something personal against you. This was my job, and if you'd come to my office five minutes before your wife did, I would have been advocating on your behalf. And that was a sufficient explanation for him to stand down. Um, but I, I've been very fortunate as well because I, I have a, a lifelong background in the martial arts. Um, I, I teach and train Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and uh, I've, I've studied different martial arts and fighting arts since I was quite young. So I, I'm not someone who's particularly young. And I'm also, you know, six foot two and, and, and athletic. So I'm, I'm not someone who um, people tend to you know, pick physical confrontations with um, just at the outset. But um, I, I've been very fortunate that hasn't happened. I, I don't know. Again, I, I don't fear those kinds of confrontations um, simply because, A, they, they don't happen often, and, B, I think for that guy who, who confronted me that way, it was in some way cathartic for him. Um, um, mm-hmm. We ended the conversation with him shaking my hand, and I just said to him, look, I, I don't know what, what's I don't remember the details of your case, but I hope your life is good, and I hope your relationship with your children is good, and I, I certainly wish you no personal animosity. He said something along the lines of that, you know, I should I should knock your teeth out right now, and I, wow. I think I, I didn't stand down, and I just said, look, if if it'd make you feel better to knock my teeth, you know, to try and knock, if you want to punch me, if it's going to make you feel better to punch me, I'll I'll let you go ahead and throw a punch at me if you want to, but I I don't. I don't know that it's going to make you feel any better, you know. Um, I, I think some of that anger, you know, is probably directed at himself and, and, and the situation he found himself in. So. Well, to the book, or yeah. in a sense the books, because the, the book has had two different titles. Sure. The, the hardbound uh, version is, if you're in my office, it's already too late. A Divorce Lawyer's Guide to Staying Together. And the trade paperback version, which I really like as a title, is simply How to Stay in Love. Yeah. Now, one of the things you've said about your practice and, and, and what you are doing actually in this book is really, in a sense, it's a study of how things break. And you were trying to preclude possibly things from breaking. What was the initial inception for this? Um, I think it, it, it just happened very gradually. And that is that I, I started to notice that there was a a wisdom of sorts that I was accruing having watched the demise of, of so many relationships and having spoken to so many people about the circumstances under which their, their marriages ended. And I just started to, to think about reverse engineering that. Um, you know, my, my sister, in addition to being a writer, uh, you know, before she became a successful writer, was a dentist. And um, my, my sister used to say to me that by the time someone had a toothache and came to her office, it was really already too late that that they you know there were things she could have done to help them if they had come to her in a preventative maintenance way um, for checkups and things like that. But by the time you have a toothache, it means that the the, the you know that the rot has essentially hit the nerve, and that by that time there's very little that can be done to 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 prevent any any problem. And so I think that planted a seed in my head, and I just started to think about you know what are the things that would help people not end up in my office. I, you know, uh, Tom Clancy in The Bonfire of the Vanities, one of the characters is speaking to another and says, you know, how did you go bankrupt? And they're talking about financial bankruptcy. And he says, well, I went bankrupt the way everyone does, very slowly and then all at once. <laughs> and, and I remember thinking, I think that's how marriages end, is they end very slowly and then all at once. You know, if you talk to people about the demise of their marriage, they'll say, oh, he was sleeping with his secretary, or oh, he just got up and left one day. And really, if you get deeper into it, you see that, well, no, there were there was no single raindrop responsible for the flood. There were lots of little things. And then, of course, this turning point moment that's usually a big thing, and it's easy to point at that big thing and say, okay, that's what ended the marriage. But really, that's kind of the nail in the coffin. So my, my question was, when I started writing it, what can we do to maintain connection and never have those big marriage killers happen? What can be done when it's not a toothache yet? And when it's just this, you know, this preventative maintenance. And that's really how I came to it. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell. I'm delighted to have as my guest James J. Sexton, whose latest book in trade paperback is called How to Stay in Love. He is actually, of all things, believe it or not, a divorce attorney. Now, one of the things you said, James, is you said that no one gets married to get divorced. And your opening chapter of your book is entitled, What is the Problem to Which Marriage is the Solution? 
Can you expound upon that, please? Sure, yeah. I, I mean, I think one of the things we don't think about is that marriage is a technology. You know, marriage like a computer or like a calculator or a ballpoint pen is something we created. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a, something that was, it codifies in a legal way or in a formal way, um, you know, the kinds of pair bonds that have happened in, in every animal, human and non-human, for many, many years. And so I, I think people don't often ask themselves the question, why am I getting married? It's, it's assumed that a person will get married. I, I think the best illustration of that is to say, if I was dating a woman for two years and I said to my friends, oh, we're getting married, no one would really be surprised by that. And no one would respond by saying, oh my God, why? Why, why would you do that? You know, it's, uh, the divorce rate's very high. That seems like a foolish thing to do. It's, it would be considered sort of poor form. Whereas if I was dating someone for two years and I said, um, you know, we've had a discussion, we've decided we're never going to get married, that would almost be considered a pathology. You know, well, well really, you know, what's wrong? Is there problems in the relationship? Are you f afraid of commitment? Even if, by the way, I was extremely committed to this person and had other things in my life that demonstrated that commitment, like owning property together or having children together. So I, I just think it's interesting to look at the fact that marriage is a technology, a, a man-made technology, and, and that it is something that um, is, like all technologies, a Faustian bargain. It was designed to solve a problem, but it creates unintentionally other problems. And when you have a technology that has such a high failure rate as, as the marriage does, you know, 53% of marriages end in divorce. So let's assume another 10, and I think I'm being generous, 10% stay together for the kids or for religious reasons or because they don't want to give away half their property. So now you have a technology that fails 63% of the time. That's an incredibly high number. And, and so, you know, if I said to someone, there's a 63% chance you're going to get hit by a car uh, if you walk across this street, that no one's going to take that walk unless there's something amazing on the other side. Um, but yet people, you know, continue to get married even with that divorce rate hanging over them. So, Don't you um, think, though, that right from the inception so many people have the wrong idea of what marriage is about? Let me give you an example from my own sure, life. Sure. Um, I remember when we were going to get married and I'd given a ring to my wife and mm -hmm. she was looking for a wedding dress and what have you, and all the planning starts to sure. occur. And, um, you know, ladies in particular get very much into it. As uh, Jay Leno used to say, the role of most men is to say, uh, yeah, OK, yep. know, yep. all the way Correct. through. Um, but then the, the, the day approaches and all the emphasis is on that. I remember saying to my wife, you know, our wedding day or future wife at that point, my, mm -hmm. my fiance, I remember saying to Christine, you know, our wedding day is not going to be the most important day of our marriage. The most important day of our marriage will probably be an unforeseen date seven years from now when we'll have two kids who have the flu and are throwing up and being sick. You have to go to work. I feel sick and I have to go to work as well. That would be the most important day of our yeah. marriage. And yet very few people come to it with that realization. They come with yeah. all the romanticism. Um, I mean, there's a line from David Bowie, uh, a song called The Thin White Duke, or actually um, Station to Station. And he says, he sings the line, the thin white duke throwing darts in lovers' eyes. And in a way, that's what your book is about. You're throwing darts in lovers' eyes and saying, watch out for this. Is that not true? I think so. I mean, I think it, it, it's with the intention of um, of opening their eyes to the reality of their situation. I, I think... You know, another statistic that's worth thinking about is the fact that even though I just told you the failure rate of marriages, that 63% of them or 53% of them documented end in divorce, the, the remarriage rate is after divorce even more interesting to me, and that is that 86% of people who divorce are remarried within five years. And that to me is fascinating because that says something about how important connection to another person is and, and how even after we've had an unsuccessful go of it, where we're willing to just keep going, you know, uh, marriage is the triumph of faith over reason in some ways. And, and I think that, that my role is to say to people, all right, look, what, what is it that's making us want to do this thing? That's a real thing. It's a real desire to connect to another person and perhaps an unspoken realization that we can come to the deepest understanding of who we are through our connection to another person who can see our blind spots and who, you know, uh, can be there for us in, in this really deep way that a marriage is supposed to embody. And so I, I, I think that, you know, I want, I think lovers' eyes should be open to the fact that, that love is not 
gifted permanently, it's loaned, and that it's really uh, uh, you know a gift that a person every day continues to get up and, and to want to be part of your life. I think you see the magic of, of that connection, even if someone's been married for 20 or 30 years, and they're having challenges in their marriage, if they're at a dinner party and someone says in polite conversation, oh, so tell me how you, the two of you met, you, you actually see that person kind of go back to that place. And there's a Absolutely. warmth that starts yes. to generate between those two people Absolutely. as they tell that story of, of the magic of love, you know. And, and I, I often tell couples that, you know, that, that that's what this book is about. It's about finding ways to just tap back into that energy on a day-to-day basis. And yeah. I, I think that's a good thing. You've written that uh, young people, when they get married, or older people, when they get married, they they don't get an instructional manual. But there was a time before we became a more pluralistic society that people actually went for a thing called marriage counselling, and and some people do it. So they they were under the auspices of a a clergyman of some sort or clergywoman who would guide them through, be it a rabbi or a priest Mm -hmm. or a minister, and would say, look, you know, I want you to take these eight weeks with me and what have you. We've diminished that role, marginalized it, so that anyone now who is a member of the universal church of uh, feathers falling from heaven or whatever they send Mm -hmm. 10 bucks into can officiate at a wedding, okay? And, and, and it's allowed to happen. Now, we've always had secular weddings, obviously, with justice of the peace. Sure. But when we diminish the role of clergy like that, um, it, it, it strikes me that, for instance, your profession would never allow someone to uh, just arbitrarily have a license for a day where they could divorce couples. Yeah. You know, they just send in 10 bucks and they're given the sanction to, to be able to divorce people. They'd yeah. say, no, no, can't if people have to pass the bar. Yeah. And yet we've, we've diminished the importance of uh, overseers, if you will, with advice – about walking down that aisle in what used to be called holy matrimony. What effect has that had? I think it's had a significant effect. I think that, you know, look, the secularization of society is certainly something that's had a broad-reaching impact. But, you know, in Catholicism, which is the religion I was I was raised into, was, you know, there was pre-cana, you know, which was you would sit down with a priest. And, mm-hmm. and one of the components of pre-cana is that in addition to sitting down with the priest and, and learning about, you know, the biblical roots of marriage and, 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 and how it's, you know, understood by the Church, they would also have you know, long-married Catholic couples meet with these young, engaged couples. And, and I actually think that is an incredibly valuable and, and probably does not have to be tied to any religious context in order for it to be effective. I think that having a young couples sit down with experienced, successful married couples... Who, Mentoring. Who, yeah, and, and just giving them some insight into the fact that, look, this is going to be you're going to have challenges, you're going to have unexpected things happen, you're going to, your bodies are, will change, your desires will change, you're, you'll be tempted to, to step outside of your marriage, you'll have, you know, and, and to say that in a, in a hands-on, non-judgmental way, look, we've been through this, we're human, we're married, we love each other, we loved each other at some point in the same excited way that, that you do, um, you're, you're betrothed, um, but the truth is, is that this is going to be a challenge at times, and, and perhaps people would go in with their eyes open. I don't think we see our parents' marriages as clearly because they're our parents. And, and of course, you know, we, we, we see our parents in a different way. That's why the thought of them even, you know, having sex is so awful to any of us to think about, <laughs> even though we wouldn't exist were it not for the fact that they had slept together at least once. So I, I, I think it would be really, really useful to reinsert in the pre-marriage process some formality um, of, you know, but, but the problem is, is we've also become, I think, a very individualistic culture and, 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 and really world where, where it's considered, you know, a sacred right of people to, to get married and, um, you know, that, that, that to put any rules on that at all uh, as a precursor, it feels like it's an impingement on people's uh, civil liberties. But I, I totally agree. I think it would be incredibly helpful, even again, with devoid of a religious narrative, for there to be some premarital training. And I can't think of who would be more qualified to teach that than either successfully married couples or people like myself who see all of the things that go wrong in marriages. Because you know, happiness is hard to define, but sadness is fairly easy to define for most people. And, and you know, I, my, my mother used to say that, you know, I, I, I don't know what intelligence is, but I can spot stupid a mile away. Mm. And, and I think that, you know, a happy marriage is, an, is a marriage that is missing all of the things that you see in marriages that end up in my office. So 
Um, I, I think it would be useful. And that's, that was really the intention of the book, was to just say, look, here's, here's what I see is broken. It's devoid of political perspective. I'm not saying that men are this way and women are that way, and this is me opining on the psychology of people. I'm telling you what I actually see in people's actual lives when you pull the curtain back and you, you, you have to tell me the truth. I get to look at your bank statements. I get to look at your emails. You know, I get a, a really candid look at what happened in your marriage, and this is what I see. The voice that you're hearing with its candid and insightful representation of life the way it is in and out of a courtroom belongs to James J. Sexton. He's our guest on Watching America. I'm your host, Alan Campbell. His latest book is entitled How to Stay in Love. You reference the idea of having a conversation about a conversation. What do you mean by that? Um, I, I think that most people learn how to argue during an argument. And I don't think that's the best time to learn. I, I think that it would be more productive, for example, if you're marrying someone or if you're married to someone or in a committed relationship with them to say, look, there's going to come a time where you and I are going to see differently about something. It may be in some small way or it may be in some huge important way. And while we're talking to each other rationally and, and that conflict doesn't have a name or subject yet, this is the time for us to talk about how do you process conflict? Are you someone who you know, needs a minute and likes to sort of digest what's going on because otherwise you feel very defensive and you might say something you regret or you need to cool down? Um, are you the kind of person that says, no, no, I don't want to go to bed angry. I want to resolve this tonight, you know, that feels that conflict needs to be addressed right away. I think the worst time to learn that about your partner or spouse is during an argument because it's when you're your least rational and it's when you're already, you've lost that goodwill. You know, there's a conflict happening and the goodwill has already evaporated or is, you know, temporarily on hold. So I, I think when, when people are getting married, they, they have an abundance of goodwill and optimism towards each other. You know, there, there's 7.3 billion people in the world and I'm saying I, I, wanna, I want you out of those 7.3 billion, you're the one I've picked. Okay, so that, that's the most goodwill you could imagine, I think, really, other than maybe the parent-child relationship. So why not at that point talk about how we're going to talk? You know, how will we talk? Will we, when there are problems or, or things that I do that annoy you, you know, if we live together, I'm going to annoy you from time to time. I, I, there's something I might do that might just rub you the wrong way. And maybe it's benign and silly, but, but it might be useful for me to know that because it might be something I don't realize I'm doing. Or it might be something that, you know, it annoys you because it has a valid basis in, in why you should be annoyed by it. So how, how should I communicate that to you if you're my partner? You know, will it come off as criticism? Uh, do, do you not want me to say it to you confrontationally or directly? Should we have a walk once a week for a half an hour where we just check in on the relationship? I mean, how, how much work would it really be to say, I mean, if we, if we commit a half an hour or an hour a day to going to the gym, we're going to stay in great shape. So is our marriage less important than our body, in a sense? I mean, could, could we say as a couple, hey, listen, once a week on Sundays, right before dinner or right after dinner, we're going to go for a walk. And for half an hour, we're just giving each other permission to just talk about how we think the marriage is doing, like give ourselves a grade for the week and, and talk about what we did well and what we might have done better, you know. And, and I just think that kind of checking in is the thing that will keep people connected and, and prevent them from losing the plot, because that's what you referenced earlier. I said that no one gets married with the intention of getting divorced. So you, you're writing a story together, and at some point you lose the plot. And I guess what I'm trying to say in the book is you don't have to lose the plot if you never get that far from shore. Well, there's the give up factor. Some people have a very yeah. low threshold for giving up. Others have a higher. And God help the person who has uh, a much higher threshold for giving up, uh, who's wedded to somebody who just wants to throw in the towel rather readily and easily. Um, I mean, I understand what you're saying, and I'm in completely in agreement with you. And um, I'll be honest with you. I'm going to be very, very candid. When I initially heard and entertained the idea of interviewing you, I was expecting somebody brash, harsh, <laughs> uh, unfeeling. Um, I don't think you're a non-romantic. Actually, I think you exhibit a great deal of sensitivity, which one would not necessarily expect by your profession, not to malign your profession. Sure. But it is nonetheless there. 
and uh, and so you you are quite becoming in in many ways to to hear you speak. Oh, thank you. But the reality of it is is that you know yeah the, the walk around the neighborhood is a good thing, but it doesn't usually the disruptions <laughs> don't allow for that. Most people don't have the self control, and you know it's it's the bending of the knuckles with the, with the salad. Uh, as the person across the, the way is stabbing their salad, yeah. and the person wants to say, "For God's sake, right. we just stop right. stabbing right. that salad right. I've been putting up right. for this," and and the right. explosions go. Right. Um, uh, but that explosion is, I think, usually a function of a lot of built-up resentment. Because I think when you're first dating someone or engaged to them, and and they're doing that, there's something in you that sort of sees it as charming. I mean, I I, I really do think that some of yes. the things when you're dating that you find charming and adorable about someone are things that if you'd been married for 20 years, you, you probably would find very irritating, you know, but there is just something about the, the, the intoxication of love that, that, you know, you're just so enamored with whatever this person does. And, and if they even brush up against you as they walk past you, there's an electricity that goes through you. And, and you know, I, I guess I know a relationship can't sustain that for 20 years. I, I, I don't think we'd get anything done if we were that it, intoxicated it by can. love. No, because I have it with my wife. Okay. Uh, That's and, a beautiful, beautiful thing. It is a beautiful thing, and we've been married. We're now into you know we, three decades. We've been married Amazing. over three decades. Amazing. But what happens is it goes it goes in phases. Sure. Okay. It comes back, and you have to intentionally say, okay, uh, as you referenced, and I really loved what you said. I've, in fact, I've loved so much of what you said today. The the whole idea of reconnecting to when you first met. You yeah. you absolutely completely right. You ask any couple how they first met. There's a softening that comes to the eyes. The lips are not uh, pursed anymore yeah. with anger. It's just like, and everybody reconnects to that. Uh, my wife and I have had to reconnect to that many, many times in our marriage, but it does sure. come back and it is there. And so I'm a believer in marriage. I, I, I really am. And I, I ironically sense, and I don't mean to be discourteous, that you do as well on, on many, oh, no, many, 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 many yeah. levels. Yes, I do very much. But yeah. when you have people who want to have, for instance, prenups, mm-hmm. I mean... Once upon a time in a land far away, there was a knight. His name was Paw, Sir Paw. He wasn't always a knight, he became one. He became one because he could play the guitar just like a ring in a bell. But more importantly than that, he had a way of writing melodies and lyrics. He had a good buddy called John. John and he had two other buddies called George and Ringo. These traveling minstrels went all over the world. People loved them. Money, I mean dough, they had more dough than wonder bread. Dough upon dough upon dough. Well, one day, despite all the access they had to all the women of the world, Paul, who would become Sir Paul at least, decided he wanted his own, own precious little waif. He found one in New York, in Westchester County. Her name was Linda Eastman. Now Linda, she was a clickety-clacker. Photography was her thing, but her daddy was in the high finance, and her brother too. Sir Paul decided to trust them with his fortune, and they made more dough on dough upon dough upon dough. But they also made babies, and they had a farm in Scotland, and a few houses all over England, even a house in Arizona. The years went by happily, frolicking, listening to music, playing music, enjoying themselves, until regrettably, Linda got sick and died. Well, that meant that Paul, Sir Paul, as a knight, was lonely. No more lonely nights. Well, there were many lonely nights for the knight. So what happened? He was looking for a particular flower, a new wife, to soothe his aching head, to share his music, to share his bed. He found one. The flower was in England. Her name was Heather. Now, Heather was an altruistic girl who didn't care nothing about money and material things. She just wanted to help people in charitable causes. Paul loved that. So the knight married the flower in a big castle, and they had people from all over the world come to celebrate with them, their music friends. But things got kind of bad, and eventually Heather decided she didn't love the knight no more. Well, what happened then? Well, first of all, he'd been warned. He'd come to New York before that, and a famous radio personality by the name of Howard had suggested that perhaps, Paul, you want to have a thing called a prenuptial agreement. And so you got good. to sign the prenup with Heather and all that kind of thing? That's got to be uncomfortable. Oh, you don't no care about prenup. that? No prenup. I don't know. You know. I don't think so. You have no idea what's going on. These figures are made up. 100 million, 50 million, 20 million, this million. How do you know if I even want any money? I'm one and a half million in debt in lawyer's fees. The best 
things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I want money. This wee lassie goes on British television. She tries to make out like that there's no interest in cash whatsoever. But the people of Britain don't buy it. They don't realise that this is a load of crap. First of all, I can only say I'm so glad it's over. And um, it was an incredible result in the end um, to secure mine and daughter's future. And it was always going to be a figure between 20 and 30 million. Um, Paul was offering a lot less than that, which you'll see in the judgment. But all in all, we came out with nearly 25 million. Money don't get everything, it's true. What it don't get, I can't use. I want money. So what do you make of a story like that? Well, if you're a Sheila, you better watch out for the bloke. On the other hand, if you're a bloke, I reckon you better watch out for the Sheilas. Now, for a happy ending, I should point out that today Paul McCartney is happily married to his third wife, Nancy Chevelle, and they live part of the year in the Hamptons and Manhattan when they're not in England, and he's thrilled with his American bride. But that aside... As far as prenups are concerned, what do you make of, of this situation with Sir Paul McCartney? Well, you know, I think prenuptial agreements are important, uh, and, and I, I don't think they have to be uh, unromantic, and I don't think they have to be viewed in a way that, that is, um, you know, uh, buying a life insurance policy for the marriage I, uh, and, and believing that it's going to die. You know, I, I mean, you know, all marriages end. They either end in death or divorce, um, but they all end. And, and I, I think that what I see a prenup as and, and, and what Sir Paul McCartney perhaps did not uh, see it as, or, or I should say his, his fiance did not see it as. Heather Mills. Heather Mills, yeah, that, that she did not see it as, is an invitation to talk about what, what do we owe to each other by a function of this relationship. And I, I think even just having a conversation about a prenuptial agreement is a worthwhile thing. Even if you end up not having a prenuptial agreement, I think having a conversation about one is a, is a great invitation to, to dialogue about something I think very important in a marriage, which is what, what obligations are we creating to each other? In what ways will we be depending on each other? Um, what is the, if you look at it from a legal standpoint, what is the consideration for this contract? You know, contracts in, in the law have to have what's called mutuality of consideration. So if I want to sell you my pen for $1,000, if I give you the pen and you give me the $1,000, whether or not that pen is worth $1,000, if there has not been any misrepresentation, you know, if I say to you, oh, this pen was owned by Sir Paul McCartney and it really wasn't, which is fraud, mm-hmm. as long as we both know the value of, of, you know, that we personally hold to this thing, the money versus the pen, we have a mutuality of consideration. In the marriage contract, it, it doesn't seem clear to me that there's a discussion about the consideration. What, what are you giving me and what am I giving you? We speak in very broad terms. So I'm going to give you my love. Okay, well, I'm going to give you my love too. Okay, but what do you mean by that? Love is a verb. You know, what do you mean by you're going to give me your love? You're going to give me your, your financial support. You're going to give me your emotional support. You're going to be uh, someone who, who, you know, makes me feel attractive uh, by, by being a willing and excited sexual partner. Um, what does that look like with some specificity? Uh, and again, I'm not trying to make it unromantic, but I do think that when you're signing up for a role, if I'm going to look for a job, I want to know my job description. And I'd like to not only know the job description that's published in the advertisement, but I'd like to talk to the person who's going to be my boss or my supervisor. What do you expect of me? You know, what, what would be the, the behaviors that are measurable that, that, that would show you I'm doing a good job? And I think that's a really uh, a useful conversation to say, look, I want to be a good husband to you. I want you to be a good wife to me. What does that mean to you? And I think that's a conversation that a prenup forces because it forces people to talk about what is the value that's being exchanged here. If, if a person I'm marrying believes that we should not have a prenuptial agreement because we are going to be from this moment forward total partners, meaning everything I had before you and everything I acquire after our marriage is ours. It is, there is no division. We are one person. Okay, that, that is a specific viewpoint. And that might be the one that Ms. Mills had, you know. And, and if someone wants a prenuptial agreement, they're not necessarily, necessarily saying, I don't love you and I don't want to be your partner moving forward. But perhaps they're saying, look, there are some things in my life that existed before you. 
And I think there has to be some measure of separateness for those things. So I just think, again, it's, it's not an unromantic thing to talk about a prenuptial agreement. And I think it's for many people, once they have that discussion, there's a certain reassurance that can be provided with a prenuptial agreement. Because again, people think a lot about what assets are being protected in a prenup. But remember, prenups can be you know, they can be a real contract where you say to someone, look, I have more assets than you. You're going to move in with me. You're going to be financially dependent on me in some ways. So if we split up, what will you need? What will you need to be whole so that I know you're not staying because I have money and you want to continue to have access to it? But for a couple getting together, as you well know, just the the entertaining of the idea that it might not work out proves too threatening for most people to to even want to visit. Uh, but that feels to be an insecurity about the nature of, and, and again, it's a widespread one, but it feels like an insecurity to me. I mean, well, it is. Yeah. a discussion about illness doesn't make the people around you ill. A discussion about death, I mean, you know, is not, uh, you know, going to, to cause the Grim Reaper to appear. James, in the last few minutes that we have here, uh, and I, I would be remiss if I didn't tell my audience that, uh, quite honestly, we could have gone two hours with you. Quite honestly, there's, there's no yeah. dispute about that. Uh, and I have to credit my producer for, again, doing a wonderful job of securing fine people like yourself. Um, in, the, in, in a nutshell, what is the chief mistake, very succinctly, that you see people typically make that among many bits of advice you have here mm-hmm. that you think this audience would benefit from knowing, don't do this. Trust me, yeah. as a 20-year experience practicing divorce attorney. And it would be? Don't lose the small connections. The small connections are everything. I, I would say that the, the small acts of kindness and love that we show to our romantic partners add up to being almost everything. Okay. And that when those are lost, um, that, is, well, that is when you begin to slide into my office. And, and that, that, that you know, we fall in love very quickly and we fall out of love I think somewhat slowly, but it's those small connections that really mean everything. I'm sure in your three decades marriage, you know, there are small kindnesses that you show to your wife and your wife shows to you that really, if we boil it down, are just so uh, emblematic for both of you in your hearts as to how much you care for each other. And, and if they were to be absent, they are the things that you would probably most miss about each other. So I just tell people, don't, don't lose the plot that way. Stay, keep, keep those small things in your consciousness and keep doing them. You remind me of an experience I frequently have with my wife. We walk yeah. along the beach and if we share a coffee, it's important to always let your love have the last sip. Lovely. And Lovely. I think that's, that's exactly essentially what, what you're I saying. Mean. Yeah, exactly I get it. What I, mean. I get it. Um, I want to thank you, James J. Sexton, for being you. Uh, I, I want to thank you not only for your profession, which in some people's minds, understandably, is sometimes considered a bit dubious, but for being uh, a fine human being, a delightful, invigorating conversationalist, and uh, a man with insight, and uh, a man, actually, ironically, with a, with a grand romantic heart. You've honored us here on Watching America. Thank you very much. The book is entitled How to Stay in Love, and I'm going to be thorough and I'm up front with everyone. It's a good book. It's really a good book. James, thank you so very much. Take Thanks care. so much for having me. What a pleasure. I God appreciate bless. it. God bless. Thank you. you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our producer, Paul Bebo. Our senior producer is Gina Gamboni. Our executive producer, Chuck Dowd. Heather Mazzoni is Chief of Content, and Bert Schmidt is our CEO. I bruise you, you bruise me. the series creator and host Alan Campbell. Until next time take care and blessings.
Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.